to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And Brenna, I don't know if you know, but this is a significant milestone episode. It is? Brenna. I'm just kidding. We already did this before. <laughs> I was going to try to fake not knowing again. It is a significant milestone episode because we have just knocked off the last of our namesakes. Yes, so in case people didn't know, we have covered the Hazel Grace, we have covered the Harry Potter, we have covered, who's our other person? Star, Star. from The Hate You Give, mm-hmm. and now we are finally up to Katniss Everdeen from The Hunger Games. And listeners will remember that I was a little bit trepidatious about doing The Hunger Games last week, hot on the heels <laughs> of The Maze Runner, which they low-key loathed. Yes, uh. <laughs> Brenna is still recovering. A little bit. She's willing to embark on the journey. And I'm fully ready, and I said this to Joe, I'm fully ready to cop to the fact that I think my trepidation about the Hunger Games was less about the Hunger Games and more about everything that came after. Yeah, the <laughs> But before we get into that, we should acknowledge that there is another person in our virtual room with us. So We have a guest. We are lucky enough to have a Hunger Games super fan, and... <laughs> I was like, what else is there to say? So yes, she is the editor-in-chief of The Seventh Row, which is a Canadian film, both a podcast as well as a website. So she's a woman after my own heart. So we are joined by Alex Heaney. Hello. Thanks Hi, for Alex. having me. Thanks for Welcome. joining us. I'm excited to have a Hunger Games super fan in the room with us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hope I'm not the only one who actually likes this book. I'm fully on board. I'm on the record. I really, really enjoy doing the reread of the book and then the rewatch of the film. So I'm I'm on your side with this, Alex. Okay. I don't think I'm not on your side. I just might be done with dystopia, like <laughs> conceptually for maybe the rest of <laughs> oh, my I life. Oh, I totally understand that. <laughs> I haven't had to read all of the other dystopias that you <sighs> have read recently. I kind of stopped yeah. at high school and then I read this. And very yes. little dystopia in between. This is this is a smart way to go. No, I, I did thoroughly enjoy the book, and we will dig into it shortly. But first, we usually do a little segment we call Homework, which is where we talk about what other things we're reading or watching or stuff in the news. Mm-hmm. Joe, did yes. you happen to do any homework this week? So I'm back to my cheating ways, because technically... Listeners may not know this, but Brenna, you and I are still front-loading a couple of episodes so that I can go to multiple film festivals. This is our fourth episode recording this week, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Might kill Joe later. We've been ambitious. Mm -hmm. I pretend that Brenna doesn't have a child. And And a full-time job. Oh my god. (laughs) Yeah, so I'm dipping into my cheat pile by reading, well, reading in quotation marks, I'm bringing up a book that I plan to read as soon as I finish The Virtue of Sin, but I'm doing so on the recommendation from Brian, my husband, who has actually read this. Oh, Brian's savvy too. All right, let's hear it. Yeah, so this is actually bringing up another book that I talked about in the last forecast episode, and I'm talking about Destroy All Monsters by Sam J. Miller. It's oh, a good title. Yes. So, Brenna, you may or may not remember this title. It's about a pair of teenagers who went through a traumatic incident when they were 12, and neither one of them has any memory about what happened. Mm -hmm. Yes, I do remember you talking about this one now. Yes. Yeah. So the boy is called Solomon, and as a result of the incident that 
the book is dedicated to exploring. He has retreated into a world that is filled with magic and monsters, and the characters in the book are reimagined into different types of roles, like his friend, Ash, who is the other protagonist of the book. She has magical powers that are being suppressed by people who don't want her to be able to use them. So half of the book is written in this fantasy storyline that may or may not be true. Like when I was talking about this book, I thought that Solomon, he was using this as an escape to get away from the events that had traumatized him. But Brian clarified to me that the book actually treats it as you don't know whether or not Solomon's reality is the reality. And Ash is actually the one who is living a fake life in the quote unquote real world of high school bullies, parents and all this other stuff. So that to me makes the text way more interesting. Because initially when I proposed this, I said, oh, well, I think it's pretty obvious what the nature of the trauma is. And it's a boy who has simply developed a fantasy coping strategy. And Brian was like, no, the entire book is written in a way that deliberately is meant to confuse you as to which reality is real, which I think is kind of fascinating. Wow. Yeah, that is fascinating. I love an unreliable narrator, as you well know. Yeah. So I haven't actually been able to start it, but Brian, he doesn't read all that often. And he cruised through this in less than a week, which for him is the big, big deal. So I'm very excited to see uh, what Destroy All Monsters by Sam J. Miller has in store for me. Nice. Cool. Mm-hmm. And what about you? Okay, so I am also breaking my own rule, which uh, listeners might remember that after the massive backlog of homework that I had to wade through to do our recap episode last season, I promised I was now only going to talk about books at homework that I had fully finished because it was too much work. That sounds ambitious. Yes, and normally that has been fine, except that I don't know if I mentioned that we've recorded four podcasts this week. (laughs) Plus, I had book club with my one adult book that I read nominally once a month. Okay, well, that's your fault. So so I had a lot of reading this week. So I am not quite finished, but it's a book that I've been promising to talk about on the show for a while. So I thought I've got 50 pages left and we're about to take a two-week recording hiatus. So I should talk about it now, lest it gets lost in the shuffle. What you got? The book is called Slayer by Kirsten White. (gasps) Yes, it's a Buffy book. It's a Buffy book. Okay, and here is the full disclosure. Joe, please cover your ears. Okay. Not really like into Buffy. Yes. I tried watching season one and then somebody was like, you just have to, my friend Heather was like, you have to just jump in at season three. And I was like, I don't do that. You don't do that. Yeah. So (laughs) I got stuck because season one, I, Joe, cover your ears. Season one's like not very good. And then I wasn't very interested in it. So I have never been a Buffy person, but my son's babysitter in the Lower Mainland was reading this and she was like, you would love this. She's like, it's super feminist and it's about butt kicking. And I was like, okay, those are two of my favorite things. So she lent me the book and I feel terrible because I also brought it with me when I moved and I still haven't finished it. I need to mail it back to her. So the book is, yes, it takes place in this in the Buffy universe, but it's a post-Buffy novel. So it's about Nina and her twin sister Artemis. They are growing up to be watchers. So they're trained to be guides for slayers except that sort of something has happened in the universe and there are at least as far as they know no more slayers oh dear yes and they live in this big castle in ireland and the landscapes and descriptions are beautiful and the writing is very very funny and choppy and smart 
Nina is really misunderstood by her family. They think that she's they malign her gifts. What she's really good at is actually like healing people, but that's not particularly valued where she lives. And so right. she feels really kind of put upon. And then, you know, big shock, she actually has powers, right? It's a YA yeah. book. Of course, she actually right. has powers. She is a chosen one. She is. There's this whole like sort of subplot with her mom and her sister. Her mom has always seemed to lean on and rely on her sister. Her father is actually dead because of Buffy, we find out at the very beginning of the text. So there's all this like, she really hates Buffy and everything about Buffy. And whenever anybody mentions Buffy, she like basically hisses. So it's, (laughs) there's a whole bunch of really interesting stuff going on for a book that's part of a you know, you would expect just a continuation of the Buffy story, right? So the way that this is sort of shifting things to be a little bit maybe critical of some of the things that people would have really loved in the original franchise, I find really interesting. But yeah, it's good. It's funny. It's a snappy read. If my life wasn't really stupid right now, I'd be finished it by now. Right. (laughs) But it is 400 pages. But yeah, Slayer by Kirsten White. It's the first in the series. And I'm going to stick around probably to read the rest. Oh, mm-hmm. may convert you just yet. Mm-hmm, maybe, maybe, maybe I'm not a Buffy person. Maybe I'm a Nina person. Could be that, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, Alex, do you have anything that you want to contribute to the homework session? Anything YA related in your life? I do, but I want to make a quick comment about Buffy, if, if I may. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm with you, Brenna. I hated season one. <sighs> Hate is maybe a strong (laughs) word, but keep in mind that I am the person who held awake when Buffy ended, wrote an introduction (laughs) to Buffy in the days before Wikipedia, which included details on like how to understand Buffy and a photocopied episode guide from a Buffy magazine. So like I went around and converted people into little Buffy disciples. So there's life after season one, you're telling me. There is life after season one. (laughs) Like they didn't totally know what they were doing in season one and then they start to figure out what they're doing in season two by like a little bit before the midway point is like when it really picks up yeah i would say if listeners if you have also not given buffy a shake or if you tried it once and you didn't like it i think a lot of people would recommend people check out the first episode just to get the introduction to the characters and then skip to the season one finale which is when she deals with the big bad the master And it sets up the entirety of season two because it gives her all kinds of issues that she needs to work through emotionally and physically. And a lot of people tend to see, yeah, the series picking up somewhere a couple of episodes into season two. I'm like not even sure you have to watch season one. You just can look up Wikipedia. (laughs) And even without Wikipedia, honestly, like, you know, it was TV at a time when we didn't have Wikipedia. So they had to keep repeating everything. (laughs) that's true it really you really do notice the difference hey when you try to binge anything from like before 2008 and it's like oh why do they keep telling me oh yeah because we used to just watch this when it happened yeah and a lot of the time you couldn't even record it so if you missed it you had no opportunity to ever find it again (laughs) i know because i caught up late on buffy and I used to watch it like every night on the Space Channel. And I was, I actually watched Buffy like all out of order. I was watching like season two at the same time as season four at the same time as season six. Ooh. But I used to record it every night from like 8 to 9 p.m. And I would have friends call me and I would sound really angry when they called at like 8.15 because I was going to miss part of my episode. And then they go, <laughs> oh, it's 8.15. You're watching Buffy. Sorry. I'll call back at you nine. You know better. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> 
Okay. So something current that you're working on? Yeah, well, I actually just recorded a podcast episode on Gregory's Girl because it's getting a re-release, which is a Bill Forsyth movie from 1980 about a gawky teenager named Gregory. You know, it really stands up. It's still a really delightful film about an extremely awkward teenager who thinks he's in one story where he's falling in love with a girl who is an excellent soccer player um, and finds himself in an entirely different one. Hmm. Interesting. We just had a conversation last week about Ghost World, which is set in the early 90s, written in the late 90s, and a lot of our conversation ended up being all about how we had so much difficulty relating to the characters, despite the fact that we're not that far removed from them. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested, like a teenage character from the 1980s, did you have any of those issues, Alex? No, I mean, like, there are moments where it almost gets into, like, icky territory, but it steers clear of those. The worst okay. being like the opening scene where it's like a bunch of boys who are watching a woman get undressed from like outside her window, right. which doesn't play so amusingly right no. now. Back in the yeah. days of boys will be boys. And now when you're like, no, that's just gross. But I mean, otherwise, it's pretty good because I mean, it, the girl that he thinks he's in love with, Dorothy, she's a really excellent soccer player and the boys soccer team is not very good. So they're holding odd. Um, they're holding tryouts and she shows up because they didn't specify no girls Um, and she's way better than all of them and instead of them being like oh we don't want girls on our team they're all in love with her Uh and so like when they play their first game and she scores a goal everybody on their team kisses her and then everybody on the opposing team kisses her (laughs) it's kind of cute and also kind of (laughs) (laughs) it doesn't play as like sexual harassment like it's pretty innocent okay (laughs) <laughs> and Gregory is is super 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 awkward has no idea what's going on he is terrible at soccer and he's surrounded by a gaggle of boys who are even more clueless than he is like he's so terrible that he gets put into goalie because he's tall and he spends the game with his back to the field talking about how great Dorothy is and there's like lots of wonderful little gags like there's an underground market in the school in the school boys bathroom and his friend Steve is this sort of he looks like a kind of macho guy but he's really into baking and then one of Gregory's friends is into photography and he's taken all these stills of Dorothy and he sells one to Gregory and then Gregory shows up in the boys bathroom and discovers he's been ripped off because they're being sold for less to the other boys <laughs> and the film kind of takes all these turns that you don't expect so what you're saying is the film is worth checking out It is worth checking out, yeah. Cool. Well, shall we move into the Hunger Games? Move into the arena? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So I am going to try to summarize this plot, Joe. Okay. Okay. I trust you. Mm, Do you, though? Do you? Yeah. Okay. Sure. All right. So (laughs) Hunger Games is a 2000. So the book begins with Katniss stepping on a branch. (laughs) You know what? (laughs) You're the worst. Okay, so The Hunger Games is a 2008 dystopian novel, YA novel, obviously, written by Suzanne Collins. And our protagonist and also our focalizer is Katniss Everdeen. So she lives in this very post-apocalyptic version of 
America. It's interesting because a lot of the synopses say that it's post-apocalyptic North America, but there's literally no indication. No, that there's no reference to Canada. Or Mexico or no. any idea that there's anything outside. What are essentially sort of, anyway, it's fine. It's like the Appalachians and the Rockies. That's what it is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And a train that goes between them. The end. Geographic lesson over. So Katniss is from District 12. What was once the second most outlying district, but the most outlying district has been destroyed. So now the most outlying district of this post-apocalyptic version of America, which situates the capital basically in Colorado. There has been at some point a rebellious uprising among the people. And in order to uh, squash the rebellion and then remind the rebellious outlying districts every year of their powerlessness, the society plunges into something called the Hunger Games, where two children from each of the districts fight each other to the death. And the mm -hmm. one victor gets cake or something for the rest of their life. More or less, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so when our book opens, we meet Katniss. We learn a few things about her, like that she's a really good hunter, for example, that she can scavenge for food, that she knows how to look after herself and her family. Her father was killed in a mining disaster, and she has been sort of the family rock for her mother and her younger sister. Without getting too granular... <laughs> um, the text then... You make it sound like it wasn't a worthwhile critique, Brenda. You talked for five <laughs> minutes before you even got to the fact that Harry was a wizard. <laughs> I'm sorry, we're moving on. It's been weeks. Let's move on. <laughs> never. I never let anything go. P.S. There's a wedding and after. Anyway, so when this, I guess they call it the reaping? Is that what they call it? When they pick mm -hmm. the selections in each district, it's all this like whole televised spectacle for the benefit of the wealthy people who live at the society's center in the capital. Yes. And unsurprisingly, the little sister who Katniss loves and would do anything for is the name pulled out of the hat for the Hunger Games. And so Katniss volunteers herself to go in her sister's stead. And the young boy from the district who is selected is about the same age as Katniss, and he's the baker's son, handily named Peta. So it's easy to remember that he's a baker's son. <laughs> and he uh, <laughs> has this, there is this sort of tension relationship sort of underlying Katniss and Peta's existence because when Katniss was at her most starving, Peta risked the violence of his own abusive mother to give her some bread from the bakery to burn and then make sure that she got some bread from the bakery to feed her family. So Katniss has like all this baggage about Peta, but there's also another boy because it's a YA book. So obviously there's a triangle and his name is Gail and he is like her hunting buddy, but he is not chosen obviously at the reaping and so he will stay behind to look after Grim and Katniss's mother. Yeah he more or less doesn't really matter too too much. Not at all. When you get into the later sections of this book. He literally only matters so that every time she has a halfway warm thought about Peta, she can go but what about Gail? <laughs> That's why he exists. Yeah but I appreciate that because I don't need more romance in this book. Oh no no Gail's shoehorned in existence is enough for everyone. So yeah anyway I mean the Hunger Games are pretty straightforward they have to fight each other to the death and a bunch of things happen in the Peta basically confesses his love partly as an act. It's a way to like gain favor with the capital and get sponsors so that they will have extra things when they're in the arena. But it's also true. And yeah. Katniss doesn't really understand that or she feigns not understanding that. She's a bit of a Luddite when it yeah. serves her. Yeah. Yes. And that is probably, I would say, my only real problem with the narrative is that I don't think Collins is particularly consistent about 
Katniss's worldliness. Like it's it seems to be able to be turned on and off at will. But whatever, that's a fairly minor issue. Yeah. So the Hunger Games games masters really sort of play into this. And as the competitors are picked off one by one, they offer the idea that maybe two victors could exist if they come from the same district. So obviously this is a big ploy to get PETA and Katniss to do more kissy stuff for the cameras. And at the end, they revoke the rule, but Katniss and PETA threaten to kill themselves, so they let them both win. But basically what we realize as this is going on is that they've caused a great uprising by standing up to the Capitol and asserting their will, and also through the acts of kindness that Katniss has committed in the arena, like burying the little girl Rue in flowers and recognizing the sort of kindnesses of her district. And so there's this underlying message that like Katniss's strength is her ability to work with other people and to recognize kindness, except for when she can't and doesn't, and it's useful to the plot to turn that off for a minute. Um, so this is where sort of this notion of like rebellion through kindness, rebellion through fellow feeling, rebellion through like friendship that's going to upset the capital, I assume, because I didn't read the second book yet i mean i have yes. but like no i read it like a minute so, <laughs> okay. but like i didn't read it again and i'm not going to until joe makes me and that's my plot summary not bad not bad thanks alex anything <laughs> uh anything stand out from that what do you mean this is where joe tells me that in spite of the fact that my plot being long and rambling i missed some majorly significant component no oh. i just he's offering you <laughs> i'm trying to think of the most logical way for us to enter into this discussion because just simply saying so you know what is everybody's relationship to the hunger games <laughs> yeah is fair. fine but it's also kind of boring okay i mean i think one of the things that maybe was underplayed in your otherwise excellent description <laughs> oh <my gosh. laughs> I hate doing plot summaries, so you know what? I have infinite respect for anybody who does them well. They're not easy. No. No. <laughs> but I think for me, what's the most interesting thing about the book is the way that PETA and Katniss, they have to learn to play the game. Mm -hmm. yes. Less the fact that this is a dystopia, which is, you know, interesting, eh, you know, that's fine. And it has some good things going for it. But really, for me, it's really about there's a story they have to tell in order to survive. And sometimes it is in conflict with the story that they're telling themselves. Yes. And then they have to work out which of those stories is true. And sometimes what they're playing for the camera is more true than the story they're telling themselves. But mm -hmm. because it's for the camera, Katniss especially has trouble accepting that that might also be true because she feels like she's sort of like rebelling against the capital by not feeling the thing that she says she's feeling. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because Katniss, at least to herself, I think as readers and particularly older readers who have the benefit of being able to read a text intended for children as adults, we can understand some of the conflict that she's going through. She herself is obviously still working through some of that, but I've always gotten the impression that she considers herself to be a very authentic person. So this idea that she would take the time or dispense energy like useless energy to lie or fabricate a romance goes against who she perceives herself to be despite as you suggested alex the fact that she needs to do this to literally survive the games mm -hmm. what's interesting though is that she is 
she perceives herself as being authentic and it's one of those things that I really like about the book is that Katniss is very much a typical teenager in so many ways like she's living her life honestly and everybody else <laughs> It's yeah. lying all the time. Right? Like, Why can't everybody be like me? Right? I'm the best. I'm the only one having an authentic experience of life, which I find really interesting, <laughs> right? Because she, I think she is both resistant to the idea and also on a certain level, she doesn't recognize that, she never really realizes that PETA could be telling the truth, or at least she resists recognizing that PETA could be telling the truth. And instead, she like works up this version of PETA in her head, who's like this master manipulator, like based on zero evidence that he's capable of being a master manipulator. He's been trying to dupe me all along. Yeah, yeah, You're like, exactly. no, he's just in love with you. Maybe even that bread was a trick. <laughs> that's totally fair i mean he is in love with her but he is also a master manipulator that's why she's confused i don't know that i would say master i definitely think that he's more savvy in terms of the way that he plays the game it's obvious that he and hamage who Mm -hmm. uh, is a former survivor who is kind of their games handler he's he gives them strategy talk on how to survive the arena but Hamish, I think, is a lot more deliberate, and he's also far more realistic. So he and Peta have a relationship where they say, okay, so man to man, this is what you got to do. It may not always gel with everybody, particularly Katniss, but this is what it's probably going to take to go as far as possible in the game. Katniss, to a certain extent, is being gaslit by Hamish because she's deliberately kept out of the loop because she's a terrible liar because she doesn't go along with plots because she is like no why would i do that i'm just gonna try to survive i agree that she's being gaslit by Hamish. i don't think she's being gaslit. like i don't think no like, uh, to me the end of the book is really where we we see that like poor Peta has no idea that she's just playing it up for the capital in those last scenes right like he really thinks like oh my god she loves me too and it's like oh Peta, no Peter, you sweet baby angel. <laughs> you little dum-dum. <laughs> right, but like part of why she finds him confusing is because, and this is something the book does much better than the film, is Peter is kind of this emotionally ambiguous character, and it's partly because that's part of what makes him real, is he doesn't just sit around making doe eyes at her constantly. No, So when she, when fair. he joins the careers, he is authentically doing it to A, stay alive himself so that he can keep her alive. Mm-hmm. but she doesn't know that so to her she's like what's going on i thought you were in love with me why are you off with the careers yeah it's just so funny that it never occurs to her that he might be playing the game yeah <laughs> i find it interesting that she assumes that he's being duplicitous about his feelings for her but, but he never doesn't assume he's being duplicitous about anything else It's like, what? I'm confused. Well, I mean, I think part of it, too, and this kind of helps to explain the way it's irrational is, and one of the things that I really love about this series is I think it's really, really good at dealing with trauma. Yeah. And part of Katniss's deal and why she has these crazy responses to PETA is because she's been let down by her mother and she's had Mm -hmm. to fend for herself. And she basically, so she has, she doesn't trust anybody and she expects everyone to let her down. So it does smallest sign that that might be what Pete is doing she assumes she's being yeah, she's betrayed. ready to walk away yeah mm-hmm. yeah I'll confess I had completely forgotten how important her father is mm. until this most reread because I remember that he had died in an accident and it had left her as more or less the sole provider for the family I had completely forgotten that she has all these memories of him teaching her how to hunt and 
him taking her to the market to learn how to barter for various goods and all these other things like i really remember it more as the way it's presented in the film Mm -hmm. like it's a one-off and then that's it Mm -hmm. so that was a bit of a surprise on this recent reread i mean the interesting thing about the book too is that they give katniss these sort of male characteristics conventionally male i should say and part Mm -hmm. of that is by pairing her with her father and then Peta has the sort of more conventionally female characteristics in the sense that he is more capable of sort of playing these social games, whereas Katniss has the sort of raw strength and capability. And that's like one of the reasons that she's so tied to her father. Which is interesting then if you think about the fact that Katniss has been celebrated as such a fantastic embodiment of female empowerment, right? Really what they're doing is they just flipped the gender characteristics mm and said, okay, she's strong now because she has, quote-unquote, traditionally masculine characteristics like the ability to fend for herself. Well, I don't know if that's entirely true because I think part of it is that in Katniss's mind, that's what makes her strong. But if you read the book, I mean, obviously you read the books, but I mean... (laughs) No, I didn't read this one either. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I think that's, again, the difference between the story the books are telling and the story that Katniss is telling. In Katniss's mind, I'm strong because I can hunt. I'm strong because I held things together. I took care of my family. You know, I kept Prim safe. But the story Mm -hmm. that Suzanne Collins is telling is the reason Katniss has so much power is because of her compassion. Right. It's her compassion that sort of starts this rebellion that she doesn't even know she's leading. It's her compassion that draws people to her. I forgot how heavy-handed the film is about that. It's just so much more delicately done in the book, the idea that there is this uprising. Mm -hmm. And it builds as the books continue on, right? Yeah. When Katniss is in the arena, as readers, we don't actually know that that's what's happening. Right, because Katniss doesn't know. Exactly. And then in the movie, they're like, oh, yeah, by the way, these people have completely rebelled because of that that salute you made. And I was like, oh, right, you're very heavy handed in the film version. Yeah, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves, because we'll talk about some of the changes that Gary Ross introduces. And I think that some of those decisions are, well, I'm pretty sure that all of those decisions are very deliberate. Oh, yeah, I assume. And I like, and I mean, I, I don't, I like the adaptation, actually, in lots of ways. But it's the book is so subtle about this idea of how rebellion builds mm-hmm. within the proletariat yeah. it's like in it's important i think that it's happened so slowly and quietly and that's how it's able to gain momentum mm-hmm. and you sort of get smacked over the head with it instead in the film which i think is a bit of a loss but yes i will wait to talk about that yeah <laughs> i mean that's also part of in the thing that's in, happening in the book is that part of the reason she's sparking this rebellion is like yes she's playing up the story of oh i'm kissing Peta and i'm in love with Peta. But the moments that really resonate for people and the moments that resonate for us as readers are when she is being completely authentic. Like when she freaks out because she thinks Peta has eaten the nightlock. Right. It's moments like that when she's authentically worried about Peta and authentically caring for him. Those are the moments that are the game changers. Even though the final, like the sort of final rebellion, she's sort of at that point somewhat learned how to play the games and is doing that in a savvy way. Can we jump back to the beginning? Because I feel Mm. like part of what makes this book stand out to me from a lot of other dystopian texts is the lengthiness that Collins is willing to allocate. Like, this is not a short book, but at the same time, if you look at the amount of time that is spent in District 12 compared to the amount of time that's spent in the actual capital Mm. and the games and that kind of stuff... 
it's a substantial amount of introductory sections to establish the world of District 12, the people, Katniss's mm-hmm. life. And in the hands of a less adept writer, that would have been a couple of chapters. She would have been on the train. It mm-hmm. would have been all about the glitz and the glamour of the Capitol and how weird they are. And then it would have been kids killing kids for as long as humanly possible as we saw in the Maze Runner. Yeah, that was exactly it. And I think Collins is very aware of where her strengths lie as a writer, and that is in world building, right? Like, she's a really adept uh, world builder. She's a really adept character. I mean, my annoyances with some of the slippage notwithstanding, I think that that's where she is at her best, and she recognizes it. I read one of the reviews, one of the contemporary reviews of The Hunger Games. I think it was actually, Joe, you're going to roll your eyes, but I think John Green actually wrote the New York Times review of this book when it came out. (laughs) course he bloody did yeah and he which and he lauded it which was part of the you know i mean having john green and john green's fandom behind the book certainly didn't hurt it sure but one of the things that he says is that the book is at its best when exactly that stuff the world building the uh, really understanding where the districts are coming from the interest in people the fact like one of the things that i really like that is quiet and it's only a couple of pages across the book but is katniss's interactions with the avox Mm, right and those kinds of moments like that's what she's really good at and the book and I agree with John Green in this case I think the book is less strong when it's just describing action the action the brutal beatings I mean they're Mm -hmm. brutal and they're graphic and they're horrific don't get me wrong like she's she accomplishes her goal but it's way less interesting to me than how good she is at world building character development and understanding the complexities of this world which is what I think mm-hmm. makes this so much more successful than something like Maze Runner, where we're meant to just not even ask questions about the complexities of that world, right? Oh my gosh. We can't, yeah. We're not even allowed to, I know I keep harping on this, we're not even allowed to ask why there's no women. <laughs> no one wants to answer a single question about the world of Maze Runner for us in book or film, <laughs> right? No, this is true. You know? Now, I'm interested in this as a bit of a... I don't want to say it's a gender dilemma, but as somebody who enjoys horror films, as somebody who enjoys action films, I sometimes find myself yearning to be like, okay, but let's get to the battle because it's such, you know, we've had these conversations before, Brenna, about the idea of putting children into threatening positions for entertainment purposes and how strongly that can tell a class critique, a political critique, Mm -hmm. and so on. I will confess, as much as I love the world building, I do enjoy the arena, the battle stuff. And I don't know if that is just... check your testosterone at the door, Joe. (laughs) Well, I'm I'm wondering, Alex, do you feel strongly one way or another? Like, do you enjoy more of the world building and less of the more traditionally action-oriented stuff? I'm trying to figure out what it is that people connect with so strongly in this book because this book series is a juggernaut. So it's it's doing something very right. I mean, for me, it's the psychological complexity of the characters and that's, mm-hmm. you know, scaffolded mm-hmm. by the world building. I personally don't really care for the... Like, I don't really care about the action stuff. So, I mean, I, I lo- sort of like the fact that the book doesn't really care about it either. <laughs> and that the focus is therefore on on the characters. And, and I think the characters are so strong. And that's why I have read these books many, many, many times. Hmm. 
Okay, so thinking then about the character relationships, how do you feel about the stuff in the cave with Peta and Katniss? Because to me, that's the emotional payoff of their relationship. Like, it's the moment where they finally start to open up, they trust each other, they tell each other stories, they share a couple of really rocky nights where it seems like they might die. But I find that its placement in the book feels a little draggy as a result because we also know that we're on the precipice of wrapping everything up am i wrong am i crazy but we're wrapping up i mean yes we are wrapping everything up but isn't the central thing that we have to wrap up what the hell is going on between the two of them and i don't even mean that from a romantic perspective i mean like katniss has to sort out whether this person is trustworthy and she also has to figure out for herself She's still in this place of like, is he just performing for the cameras? Is this true? And then she she starts to doubt her original assumptions about PETA, which are that everything is manipulation, right? And she starts to... So she, at first she thinks PETA is just like purely kind. And then she thinks PETA is just purely manipulative. And it's in that cave that she has to realize that like, he did some things for the game just like she did. And also there is truth in what he's describing to her. And also his kind actions towards her have been real. Like that all of those things can be true. Like to me, that's the complexity that we have to wrap up. Like that cave scene has to happen and it has to happen there for that to be satisfying. Yeah, I agree. And to set up the suicide pack, right? Yes. Because that obviously doesn't work if they're not both invested in it. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think part of the problem is that I don't find to be a very interesting character. <laughs> like I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't know if that was a, a legitimate gasp or if that was a mock gasp, No, it was a legitimate gasp. I think Peta is kind of freaking dull. In the movies, I would agree. In the book, I disagree. Mm-hmm. I agree with Alex's agreements and disagreements. <laughs> I see how it is. I thought this was going to be Alex and I teaming up against you, but now I see how it is. It's I have so allies everywhere. <laughs> I see. I'm in. I'm out in this arena by myself, and You're you Fox two have... face. You're Fox face. <laughs> hey, I will happily be Fox face. <laughs> if this had been a different author, I would have gotten spinoffs of Fox face and <laughs> Cato and Thresh. I would read Thresh's book. I would read Thresh's book, mm-hmm. or or like a Rue Thresh book, like yeah. their lives before they were reaped. Which, by the way, ew, that's such a disgusting sounding process. (laughs) Do we want to talk about the social commentary about wealth and even the idea of like televising death for entertainment purposes? Like, I kind of love the savagery, like the very obvious but very savage critique of pop culture Mm. and our obsession with reality television. And the decadence of late stage capitalism. Brenna. Yes, Brenna, but honestly. (laughs) What? I don't know why what I said was such a departure. Personally, what I like about it is the way it works as a metaphor. The way that we're sort of like performing. Well, this is not exactly the class thing, but the the sort of reality TV thing. The Mm -hmm. way that you're performing like an identity and then how that has, how you have to square that with who you are. Mm Mm-hmm. And sometimes there's the idea of who you think you are or who you want people to see you as. And squaring that with who you actually are can be a challenge and accepting the the way those are different or similar. It's interesting that PETA is so much more prepared for that than um, Katniss is. And I've Mm -hmm. thought about this a lot because 
so much of the writing about trauma and how trauma functions in these books is focused obviously on Katniss for good reason right Mm -hmm. right but I also think there's something really interesting about how so Katniss arrives at the games believing that there is one way to be in the world right you exist as your authentic self and that is it and everything else is a lie (laughs) anything else that you do that wavers from your authentic self is a lie whereas PETA is an abused child Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Katniss has experienced trauma and Katniss has experienced starvation, but, but not abuse. And she's abu- uh, experienced neglect, but she hasn't experienced abuse and she mm-hmm. hasn't experienced the kind of duplicitous survival that PETA has had to, you know, like who does he mm-hmm. have to be in front of his mother versus who can he be in front of his father? What mm-hmm. kind of lies does he have to tell to get to still be the kind boy who throws the bread to the hungry girl, right? Mm-hmm. Peter's whole life has been about negotiating how he is being viewed in a given moment to protect himself. And so when he talks about how he's going to protect his authentic self, he's thinking about, you know, how do I still get to be the boy who throws the bread? Like, even in the household with his mother, he can still be the boy who throws the bread, right? And so Mm -hmm. he's thinking, like, how do I protect that version of myself? Whereas for Katniss, the idea that there are multiple versions of yourself, she just assumes that that is bat or that that makes you a liar when really for some people that is what is survival right Mm -hmm. and so I always think about that scene with Peter on the roof because I don't think people talk about it enough and how oh it's such a great scene yeah and how complicated what Suzanne Collins is doing there how complicated it is what she's doing there about Peter's character and about this notion of your authentic self is something that you hold it's actually something you hold deep within yourself and it's not necessarily something that you are able to live every moment the way Katniss wants to believe that you can. Yeah, I think that was so well said. You sort of captured exactly what I love about the books. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what I love about PETA. Like, that's why I ultimately really, I definitely, I think that Gail is, Gail is the handsomer and more interesting figure in the films, which I think has overwritten a lot of the complexity and nuance of PETA in the, in the books. Interesting. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think one thing that has happened, and it's a bit unfortunate in the wake of the films, is that it has rewritten a lot of the ways that people read the books. It definitely, I realized, well, I said this to you last week, but it absolutely colored my perception going into the book. I was rolling my eyes picking up the book, which is not how I felt about it the first time I read it. Not at all. Like, I loved this book the first time I read it. I stayed up all night reading it. And it was nice to revisit the book and have that memory. But it does, re- yeah, exactly what you're saying, Joe. Like the way in which the film, when something is this popular, the ways in which the film overwrites our understanding of the text is worth talking about. Sorry, I totally cut you off. No, I mean, I, I, I'm reticent because I don't want to come down hard on the film, in particular this first film, because I find what's happened with me, and this is something that you and I are only now really experiencing, because if you look at the history of our podcast, we've only actually covered three texts no, four texts that have been turned into franchises. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the time we were dealing with a standalone story. So mm-hmm. you've got a film and a book. Whereas here, I found when I went back to revisit this, so much of my memories were colored by the really frustrating financial decision mm-hmm. to divide the final oh my God. not good book into mm-hmm. two really legitimately terrible films. Mm-hmm. And I was excited to see if I could rekindle my passion for the original book and the original film in the wake of having all of that displeasure with the way that they handled the actual franchise as a, you know, a capitalistic project. Is it a good idea to run the trailer then, Joe, and then we'll talk about all this together? 
Yes. Yes. Well done. Thank, Thank you, you for the segue. You're very welcome. Welcome, welcome. The time has come to select one courageous young man and woman for the honor of representing District 12 in the 74th Annual Hunger Games. It's your first year, Prim. Your name's only been in there once. They're not going to pick you. show that's all they want there's 24 of a scale only one comes out so you're here to make me look pretty i'm here to help you make an impression and so it was decreed that each year the 12 districts of pan am shall offer up in tribute one young man and woman between the ages of 12 and 18 to be trained in the art of survival and to be prepared to fight to the desert. This is the time to show them everything. Make sure they remember you. I just keep wishing I could think of a way to show them that they don't own me. If I'm gonna die, I wanna still be me. I just can't afford to think like that. So the film The Hunger Games is from 2012, and it's directed by Gary Ross. He also co-wrote the screenplay with Suzanne Collins and someone named Billy Ray, who I'm going to assume is not a Cyrus fan member. <laughs> <laughs> I had forgotten that Collins was actually involved in the production. I thought that she had more of a after kind of responsibility where she was on set and kind of keeping track of things but i didn't realize she was integral in bringing this together to the screen so we've got a pretty pedigreed adult cast and then once again we've got somewhat young whippersnappers in the teenage roles so donald sutherland is president snow wes bentley is games master seneca kane stanley tucci who we've talked about on the podcast before in easy a is caesar flickerman who i think for a lot of people is maybe one of their favorite characters in the really? film i love the fact that he is basically giving a performance that is 80 percent teeth <laughs> Like, the fact that every interaction with him is always preceded by his laugh and the way that he's introduced in that reality television spectrum where you get to see slow-moving images of all of his different interviews. I just feel like the performance is so spot on. See, I liked him as a cipher for reality TV. Like, I liked him as a thematic cipher, but I felt like a lot of the warmth and, like, the rooting for the candidates gets kind of lost in the performance. Mm-hmm. I think it comes through for Katniss and PETA. And I don't know that we're given enough. Like, it's it's shocking that this is a two-hour <laughs> 15-minute film. And to be honest, I think it probably could have been at least a half an hour longer to have done a bit more justice to the other tributes and some of the more nuanced complications. It's always striking mm-hmm. to me that, like, in the book, she knows all of the other tributes, like, so well. I mean, not like, they're not all best friends, but she knows all their names. She knows their strengths. She knows what she's seen them do in the arena. She's watched all their interviews. And then in the film version, she doesn't even know their names. She's <laughs> like, who's the name of that guy who just died? Oh, yeah. Yeah. District 5? What? Yeah, it's a total, it's a very interesting... 
I mean, I know you have to cut stuff. The book is long. The film is very long and you have to cut (laughs) stuff. But I just found that an interesting thing to cut because there's a lot of ways in which who she decides to see as sort of an ally versus somebody who can safely be ignored versus a threat has a lot to do with the larger class politics of the novel. And so it was kind of a shame to lose that. Yeah. Yeah. One of the problems they have with this film is that every time they allied a complexity, it comes back to bite them in the future films. Yes. Yes. Like that really is a very badly. Astute comment. Yes. As someone who literally watched Catching Fire yesterday because I was just like, you know what? I'm having a bad day and I just kind of want to watch something. I can say that the second film really suffers by not having mm-hmm. a greater awareness of the other districts. Like a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and it really suffers by having like a less interesting PETA than in the books. Mm-hmm. Mm, interesting. Okay. Lenny Kravitz is Cinna, the wardrobe consultant who gives Katniss her girl on fire persona. Woody Harrelson is Hamish. Elizabeth Banks is Effie, who we've not really discussed at all up to this point. And then we've got the kids. So Liam Hemsworth is Gail, Josh Hutcherson is Peta, and Jennifer Lawrence is, of course, Katniss Everdeen. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. And one other final character that we should mention. So Brenna, I gave you homework. I can't remember if it was on air or off air. It was off air, but I did. I recognized a human being in a movie. Yay. Yay. So <laughs> listeners, I had asked Brenna to pay attention to who is cast as Rue to see if she could figure out who the actress is and Brenna. It's Star. Yeah. So it's a manless Stenberg from The Hate You Give and also Everything Everything. Yeah, we've seen her a bunch and she's always great. Mm-hmm. Like she's just always delightful. Yeah. Manages to do a lot here with not very much screen time. Mm-hmm. 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 So one final quick thing before we can open the discussion up is this film had a $78 million budget, which is arguably one of the higher ones that we've encountered so far. But check out the gross. $408 million in North America. Cheapers. So this is massive. This is Harry Potter level big. And it's because of that gross that we get... The Host and Ender's Game and Mortal Instruments City of Bones in 2013, and then Divergent, Maze Runner, The Giver, and Z for Zachariah in 2014 and 15. So I have a lot of things to blame this movie for. Yeah, they do. And some of the CGI, the flames, oh my god, the flames look so bad. And I didn't even watch this one on my phone, Joe. I watched it on a real TV. Well, here's the thing. So one of the things, and I'm not going to go into Catching Fire because yes, Brenna, I am going to make you do it. Invite me back. (laughs) (laughs) The difference between Catching Fire and The Hunger Games is that they imploded the budget. So this is 78. I think for Catching Fire, they gave him... It's a new director, Francis Lawrence, but I believe they gave him at least $100 million. So the special effects here don't look great. They look quite a bit better in the future films, but it's also because this was a Twilight scenario where they didn't give Gary Ross a ton of money. Like, 78 is a lot of money, but it's not a ton of money for what they're making. And I think part of it was we need reassurances that this can work so that we can build this out as a franchise. Mm. Can we talk about the uh, secretly racist book fans that we all found out about when the movie came out? What? I miss this story. (laughs) When the movie came out, there was like an explosion on Twitter and Facebook and other social media that people were confused and surprised that Rue was black. 
even though she is explicitly described as such in the book Mm -hmm. to the point that Jezebel did a roundup of all of the comments and it was like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of social media comments people being like I don't understand why they made her black it's like did you read the book (laughs) my absolute favorite comment uh on the whole thing I'm think it was the review in Forbes. I'm not sure. But anyway, the, the quote that I loved was, it comes down to this. If the casting of Rue, Thresh, and Cinna has left you bewildered and upset, consider two things. One, you may be a racist. Congratulations. <laughs> two, you definitely lack basic reading comprehension. Mazel tov. <laughs> Nice. It was a huge deal, though. Like, The Guardian, HuffPo, like, everybody ran these stories about how angry fans were. And I think that... It's really indicative to me of just how used we are as audiences to worlds that are white by default and Mm -hmm. that any variation from that is something that somehow requires justification or like reasoning. And this was just a really, to me, a very troubling and public example of it. Well, but there's also the odd flip side where I paid specific attention on this reread and there is a reference to the fact that Katniss has darker skin Mm -hmm. because I think they even described that she has a similar complexion to Gale and he has olive skinned. So Mm -hmm. there was a number Mm -hmm. of people who were actually very frustrated that Lily White Jennifer Lawrence was cast as Katniss as opposed to somebody who was a little bit more dark skin or you know if you look at the people who are from the Appalachians like was there some kind of better candidate that they could have picked well it's interesting because Collins has talked a lot about I mean she came to Amanda Stenberg's defense when she was getting a lot of trash online about being cast as Rue and pointed out the exact passages in the book where Rue was described as being black but she also talked about how when she envision the characters she envisions in america hundreds of years from now where there has been a lot of ethnic mixing right and that she thought that jennifer lawrence was a perfect katniss but that she recognizes that the criticisms around race are probably fair in that regard which i think is really i mean i think she's been interestingly even-handed and thoughtful in her discussion of these things because the whole point is that prim and I mean, not the whole point, but one of the marks of distinction that is made is that Prim and her mother look more like the shopkeeping class, right? They're whiter, they're paler, they're less exposed to the elements. And Gail and Katniss look a lot more like the laboring class, right? Like that's sort of a distinction even just within District 12. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because even Peta is meant to be of a higher class because he lives in town compared to Katniss who lives on the outskirts because... That's what enables her to become a hunter. She's so close to the fence that she can just sneak under and get her game and that kind of stuff. Okay, can I just correct myself? So the quote that I read before was from The Guardian. It was from The Guardian review of the film. Okay. And the reviewer is Bim Adewumni. So it was not the Forbes review, it was The Guardian review. Okay. So what do we think of the film? Alex, you didn't seem quite as warm on it. Is that just because it's lost some of the nuances from the book or are there other issues? Yeah, I mean, I I should say that I actually saw the film before I read the books. Okay. (laughs) That's allowed. We allow that here on on occasion. (laughs) And I liked the film so much that then I read the books and then I still like the film. But then at some point, the books just like really eclipsed the films for me. Mm. Mm -hmm. So I actually haven't rewatched the original Hunger Games basically since the year it came out. 
And one of the things that really stood out to me is that's distinct about this one, especially compared to the later films, is how good some of the image making in it is. Like there is some really great iconic images, like when Katniss raises, you know, does the District 12 sign after burying Rue, when Gail grabs Prim at the reaping and mm-hmm. brings her away. I mean, I, I was just rereading this really wonderful piece that Jacob Clifton wrote about the film when it came out. And one of the things he said in it was that 10 years from now, people will remember the image of Gail grabbing Prim at the reaping. And, you know, I think that's true. Like, that's one of the few things that I remember from the film. And I think that it does a really great job at finding some of those moments. And also at letting us watch Jennifer Lawrence as Katniss think like one of the real pleasures of it is is how good she is and how much she is thinking all the time and we get to watch her do that i think it does a really great job of adapting her i like the way it's broadened out our understanding of hamish and our understanding of the world more generally though i agree with brenna that it can be a bit heavy-handed my main issue is that it's really done a disservice to Peta, and will later do a disservice to gail Mm -hmm. and that becomes increasingly problematic like just the way it deals with a lot of the supporting characters who become increasingly important as the books go on yeah it's not extremely obvious which is i wonder if that's one of the reasons why the kind of retcon reaction to the way that people look at the books has changed in the wake of the films is because it's not super obvious but the film is so much more obviously about katniss Mm-hmm. Even though the mm-hmm. book is told from her first-person point of view, Collins has a way of integrating all of this other emotional character depth into it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because Katniss is such an astute... She's really good at observing people, right? Which we're meant to see that as something that she has gleaned from her time in the forest. Like, she's spending all this time just observing the wilderness and looking for game and that kind of stuff. So it's made her a great observer of humanity and the world. But she's been able to pick up all these different things that she doesn't always know how to process them, but she's still observing them. Whereas in the film, because, you know, we don't get a voiceover, which is something that we tend to get in YA adaptations... We're not as privy to the things that she's thinking about, so we're only left with watching her observing other things, but we're not seeing, I don't know, all the pieces clicking together. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it's interesting, because cinematically, I really like the choice that they made to take the book out of Katniss's head. Mm -hmm. We've talked before about how exhausting I tend to find uh, voiceover at a certain point, and Uh, not always, like... (laughs) Probably one of my favorite movies ever is uh, High Fidelity, and that uses voiceover and fourth wall breaking like very effectively. So it's not like I don't ever like it, but I think that especially in these kinds of movies, it can end up being very overdone and very boring. Yes. So I was really pleased, and I remember like I often used to teach adaptation, concepts of adaptation in class, and one of the things that we talk about is like the different types of adaptation, and that. The Hunger Games is not trying to transpose the text onto the screen, but instead it's trying to represent what the text is representing, but in a cinematic way. So so using the sort of reality TV idea, seeing everything through the eyes of the audience. And as a result, far more so than in the book, we are complicit with the residents of the Capitol mm-hmm. in the film mm-hmm. in a yeah. way that we aren't in the book. Because in the book, we are on Katniss's side. We are in Katniss's head. We are with her on the ground. And I think that's really 
effective. Like, it makes the movie really unsettling because, yeah, we're watching this grotesque horror unfold just like the people in the Capitol. But I think it's really hard to do that and maintain the kind of nuanced character development that we see happening in the text. The film isn't as adept at covering some of the world building and as a result it overcompensates by saying okay well we're going to give people a greater sense of how do people consume the games as Mm -hmm. viewers and I think that's actually the biggest change that the film does is that it gives us more time with President Snow and it gives us more time with Seneca Crane so that we have an understanding of the packaging and the way that Hamish has to go about getting sponsors to save Katniss and PETA at various different times. Again, this is probably an example of giving the more high-profile adults a little bit more to more do, to do. Yeah. which we saw completely derailed in the film adaptation of The Giver, where they were like, well, we got Meryl Streep, so <laughs> give her a bunch. <laughs> And make it all bad. I feel like this this is actually a good restrained model that yes. the people who made The Giver would have been well to have paid attention to <laughs> because we get just enough of a sense of menace from Donald Sutherland's mm-hmm. President Snow. I mean, he's Donald Sutherland. I love Donald Sutherland. And he, he could play this role in his sleep. So it's not a big surprise that he's able to pull it off without actually having to do too, too much. But I do enjoy the interactions with him and Seneca. I think it's a little bit spoon fed at times where they're talking about, well, why don't you just kill her? And no, we need to do this. And that actually becomes far more egregious in Catching Fire. But again, a discussion for another day. I do want to focus one other thing, a creative decision. So Gary Ross is on the record. You can find quotes from him talking about his decision to shoot this with handheld camera, particularly Mm. the action footage in the arena. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's very obvious in the reaping sequences in District 12 as well. But part of the reason that he did this was to try to get us into Katniss's mindset, but also to not be egregious, particularly in the arena with the violence. Because he was like, I'm very cognizant that I'm showing a bunch of preteens and teenagers murdering each other. So he didn't want it to be excessive and disgusting and gross. And I thought that this was an interesting decision because, Brenna, you may not have any relationship with this. Alex, you probably do. But there were also criticisms when the book came out, but way more so when it became a feature film that was obviously like going to have a huge publicity push behind it. But there were criticisms that Suzanne Collins had actually lifted this premise from a Japanese book and film called Battle Royale. Oh, right. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. So Battle Royale features the exact same concept of teenagers from a high school Japanese class that are sequestered on an island and told to kill each other until there is only one. They are given backpacks with different kinds of supplies. Some of them have completely useless items. Other backpacks have guns and knives and other things. And the film tracks uh, the way that these different teenagers respond. So some become extremely bloodthirsty, others try to hide, some commit suicide because they don't want to participate. And that one was completely censored and criticized in North America to the point where for the longest time you couldn't even get a legal copy of it you had to get a bootleg imported from japan or it was a terrible torrent that you could download and it would be all like blah janky so i thought it was interesting that gary ross decided that he was going to pull back from that idea because that movie leans hard into 
let me show you how these kids die. And it's very full on. So I thought it was an interesting decision considering the relationship that North America and particularly the U.S. has with things like violence against children. Yeah, I think one of the things that he also succeeds at is we actually get to see some of the capitalist propaganda in the film. Mm-hmm. And that's quite helpful also seeing how the people in the Capitol re- react to it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the video that they see at the reaping and they're talking about the kids, but they're not kids in the video, right? They look like warriors in the video. Right. They all look like Cato. So it's significant that that's sort of the Capitol's view of things and and that's what they're showing people. And then, you know, when... Seneca gets schooled by President Snow about, you know, why don't we just kill them? And it's like genuinely surprising to him that there's a psychological component to the games. He just thinks it's literally a game. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes President Snow, you're just thinking like, dude, how have you managed to hold on to power because you are not savvy enough about the way that people are going to react to certain things? And I mean, it is kind of heavy handed, but it's also interesting to see, oh, okay, so he doesn't see what's, he doesn't understand what's going on. He thinks it's just a game show. Yeah. And I think that sort of helps build out the world and also helps to sort of prevent it from becoming gratuitous because you are aware of the sort of iconography within the world and how messed up it is. It's always been interesting to me, that comparison to Battle Royale. Not that I don't, I mean, I've not seen Battle Royale, Hello, It's Me. But I know I know of it. I understand I could it make you do it. There's a book and a film. Really will walk off this show. Um, but, <laughs> but to me, the comparison that makes a lot more sense and is much more ubiquitous in, like, American culture, because it's literally the most read short story in America is the lottery, right? right? Like, Mm -hmm. this is very obviously a rethinking, and I don't mean this in like a, she's ripped off the lottery, but it's very obviously a rethinking of those same sort of thematic Mm -hmm. issues and ideas that percolate in American society. And this idea that comes directly out of Puritanism, which is the idea that, like, you can scapegoat, you can sacrifice the bad out of a society and that's a totally plausible and possible thing to do, right? Like these are these are foundational myths to the American psyche, yeah. right? Like they go back to the white people showing up on the boats in the first place. And so it's interesting to me that like... Th- well, there's an inherent class element in that as well, right? You know, yes. if you promise people riches beyond their wildest dreams or tell them we'll lift you out of poverty into a life of luxury... All you have to do is give up all of your freedom. Yes. Just sell your soul and enter into this and it could all be yours. I mean, there's so many of these short stories in American literature, the ones who walk away from Omelas, right? Like this idea that you can have a perfect life in a perfect society and all you have to do is accept that there is one child being tortured. And as long as you accept that there's one child being tortured, then it's all going to be fine. And there are some people who can't do it and who walk away from the society, but the vast majority of people stay, which is is such an obvious critique of capitalism and how Mm -hmm. it functions, right? But it's 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 an enduring, it's effective Mm -hmm. and it's an enduring story in American literature. So I've always found, not that you can't look at this and say like, oh, look at these interesting parallels with Battle Royale, but like there is such a rich history of this conversation taking place in American literature that Suzanne Collins is tapping directly into. Mm -hmm. On the surface, like 
kids and backpacks and an island and blood like yes the parallels with battle royale are really clear but thematically she's talking about something that you know american literature has been talking about since it started yeah and the idea of entertainment televised entertainment scripted mm-hmm. entertainment like that that was, was the thing that really caught my eye on the rewatch of this film was mm-hmm. the moment that they bring in the mutations and just the feeling of unfairness of that development mm-hmm, where the game mm-hmm. makers can just change everything on a whim. If you were a child in this arena, you're probably thinking, okay, I just need to stay alive long enough. All I have to do is avoid the careers and hide and I might be able to survive. And then to think that you could do all that, make it nearly till the end and then just get killed by one of those dumb dogs. Like, I'm watching this thinking, how could someone take pleasure in watching this? Like, this is not a fair game. But then I realized I was president snowing my way through it. Like, this is not a game. This is an orchestrated, very deliberate manipulation. And to watch the games is to buy into it and to sell your soul. It shows you how the game makers, like, not the lead game maker, but like the people who, yeah, are like designing dogs to send in to kill small children Mm -hmm. that woman looks so proud of the dog and you're just like a lady Lady. she's proud of herself she's proud of the scenario she's proud of what she's accomplished because within the context of her world her pride is appropriate it totally made me think of the giver and jonas's father right yeah killing so happy killing children yeah adults killing children yay (laughs) (laughs) it's a testament to the extent that we all brainwash ourselves to function in society right i mean yes we're not actively killing children but like look at the supply chain of every good you own right like there's a certain amount of horror to which we anesthetize ourselves in order to function and i mean what's effective about the hunger games is the ability to tell that story in a way that hopefully we reflect back on ourselves right Mm -hmm. i think something that the film does well is like as i'm thinking about what you're what you're what you're talking about the way it shows how orchestrated the game is and how unfair it is is it draws really good parallels between the game inside the arena and the game outside the arena mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you know the fact that we can see this sort of enforced poverty in district 12 and then they come to the capital and you see just being able to see all the riches instead of just being told mm-hmm. about them you're so you become very aware of the fact, you know, there's no reason they couldn't ship food to District 12. No, like no, they, they just don't want, want them to. to be in poverty um, so that they are desperate. And yeah. in some ways, this film is very good at setting up the other films in that respect, because, you know, the fact that the games never end is where the books go. And you start to really feel that in this film in a way that you can't in the books because Katniss hasn't figured that out. Yeah, that is true. We haven't really touched on her, and I feel like in part it's because Elizabeth Banks does such an amazing job at making her seem like a flighty character, but I loved the idea of Effie as almost a mediator between, mm-hmm. like, she she prepares us for what we will see in the capital, and in a way she's emblematic of the society that has grown up around the Hunger Games and how she has anesthetized herself to what the horrors are. And I think I love Banks's performance in the film much more than I liked the slightness of the character in the book because mm. they allow her to do things like exclaim in horror when Katniss stabs the table and she can say, that is mahogany. <laughs> mm. 
she seems stupid and oblivious to me in the book, whereas in the film, Banks, I think, does such a good job of underlying the idea that she has, like, she has just drunk the Kool-Aid to such an extent that she knows how terrible it is, but she's willing to put on the mask, the full face of makeup, and go out to District 12 in her ridiculous outfit and pretend like, yeah, this is all normal. (laughs) It's hard not to like Elizabeth Banks, which is part of why she's such an effective Effie, right? Because she draws you in, she draws you into that world, she sucks you in to wanting to know more about her and then you're like oh wait no these look these are horrible people right and you have to keep reminding yourself because she is such a charismatic person yeah she's also unnamed in this film which i didn't realize no one ever addresses her by name no one says her name aloud huh which i thought was such an interesting deliberate choice she literally does not even have a name i think gary ross is doing good things with her too Because you take that sort of charisma and obliviousness and he sort of really milks that in the scene where they're first, they're about to get on the train and you see Katniss and you see Peeta just totally spaced out, like they're completely traumatized and in shock. Mm -hmm. The sound is basically taken out and there's just score and you see Effie blabbering away and they're just, she's oblivious to the fact that they are in shock and they are oblivious to what she's saying and it's it's something I'd completely forgotten, but it's a pretty powerful moment, and it does show you how traumatized these kids are. Yeah, I love that Peta is crying in that scene, too. Yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like we could continue to raise all sorts of fascinating, interesting ideas, but I'm also cognizant of time. Hmm. What is our big takeaway from this? Like, the film side of me is fascinated by the way that this changed the game, so... In 2012, that was the last year that a Twilight film was released. Mm. So the Twilight films began in 2008, and there were five films in total because they set the model of dividing the final book into two films, capitalistic purposes, and they finished in 2012, and then we go right into The Hunger Games, and we get The Hunger Games, four movies, one each year, And starting in 2013 is when we get this deluge of romantic triangle, YA, dystopian, science fiction-y style themes. Like, this is the peak period for these films to be released. And the grossest to me, like, that is the legacy of this. I can't speak for the book because I don't have the same relationship to it. But the movie, The Hunger Games, together with Twilight, changed the face of what YA adaptations were and proved that they could be just massive blockbusters. It's kind of crazy. Mm, It is. I think uh, the take home for me here is that I think watching the film reinforced for me what I really like about the book, which is, (laughs) I mean, and it's not that I think the film is bad because I don't. I found it totally enjoyable. But to me, the book's magic is in a lot of the development that we just don't get to see in the film. And I I still think like a lot of the choices that are made are the right ones. I didn't want a two and a half hour voiceover led Mm -hmm. quest through the bushes by any stretch of the imagination. And I think that there are some, we talked about this with The Giver, right? There are some things that don't translate cinematically and so you have to do something else and yeah. I think the, the something else that they do with this film is effective yeah. but I think that it sets them up for failure with the films that come next 
unfortunately. Yeah. And um, yeah, I just, I'm on Team PETA for life. And um, <laughs> that's all I have to say. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I guess for me, one of the things is I think, and this is not a problem just with the Hunger Games, but I I mean, it also happens in Outlander, and I'm sure I could think of other adaptations if I tried. But there seems to be this idea that in order to have a strong female character, TM, that you sort of reduce the complexity of the male characters, and that's hugely problematic, especially when the male character is meant as the primary foil. Mm Mm-hmm. You need his complexity because that is part of what allows for her complexity. And she's not as interesting in a world without more complex men. And I mean, one of the things I wonder about is, you know, why is PETA so much less interesting in the film? Is it because Josh Hutcherson is entirely miscast? I think that's maybe part of it. It doesn't help. And I love him as an actor, but yeah, particularly glaringly not right i mean i also wonder does it have something to do with the loss of the first person narrative because part of how we understand his complexity is because we're in katniss's head and she doesn't totally understand what's going on you know if they had the scene in the book where gail is being pulled out before you know at the final goodbye and he's saying katniss i you know if they showed that (sighs) in the film you like it would be too much because you could already tell he loved her just from seeing their interactions Mm -hmm. together. Yeah. So I wonder if part of it, the problem is the fact that we're being pulled out of her first person perspective, or I mean, because there's some interesting changes too in the adaptation, like in the books, the fact that they're going to be a team is an idea that Hamish and Cinna advance, but in the films, it keeps coming from PETA. Mm. Mm. Which is an interesting choice. Like, it feels like they, that was a deliberate screenwriting choice to give Peter more agency more so, that, yeah. so that he could have that complexity. But I, I don't know. But it changes who he is as a character as a result. Yeah, of... it does. Yeah. And I guess I'm just very troubled by the way that these male characters get reduced. It's frustrating to see, the, especially when a lot of these stories are romances. Yes. Yeah. It's frustrating to see these wonderful female characters stuck with these boring boys oh my yes. gosh mediocre white boy for life yeah such a theme i want to see them with interesting boys who challenge them and do int- and you know allow for interesting character development yeah that is so astute alex because honestly even just watching the next film catching fire I can already get that sense for how they're playing Katniss between these two boys. And part of me is just like, girl, no, just stay solo because they're both super boring and not worth <laughs> your time. And I haven't read Catching Fire or Mockingjay since I first read them. I read them back to back. Like, I think I read all three books one hard after not another to. in quick succession. Really hard not to, particularly if they're available to you. But I remember not liking the romances in the book either. So I'm interested to explore my feelings about whether or not we even have to have YA romances in these films. Like, sorry, not YA romances in these films. What does that even mean? (laughs) Basically, whether or not we need romance in these. Like, I can't help but wonder if this as a franchise as properties wouldn't have worked better if there was just no romance. Like, Mm. why can't she just have familial or friendship love with these people? 
I will mm. say that one good part of the romance in the film is in Jennifer Lawrence's performance. She's yeah. notably different in the way she is around PETA, and he's sort of this softening influence. Her voice gets softer and more tender, and her body softens around him. Yes, it is different in the book. It's the enjoyment of being able to see a filmed version, right? Like you you can allow the actors to bring something in their performance as opposed to just having to read about it. Right. It's hard to deny just how good Jennifer Lawrence is. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I think she, she sells the complexity of part of why PETA is so good for Katniss is because he brings, he allows her to, in some ways to be her more authentic self. Like she just becomes that with him. She softens, she becomes the more sort of compassionate person. And he sort of helps her break down those walls that she's built up because of the neglect that she's experienced and the difficulties that she's experienced. And she mm-hmm. sells that part of the relationship in the film, mm-hmm. which is so important to understanding why they're the sort of perfect partners, not just romantic partners, but like actual partners. Yes. And unfortunately, he doesn't really sell it <laughs> because you don't totally get why. Yeah, you're like, okay, he's sort of good for her in this way, but he's still real bland. Mm-hmm. But yeah, sorry, Joe, I I don't want to talk over you talking about how amazing she is, because I really do think (laughs) she's so great in this, and in this film in particular, and I think how good she is has been sort of underplayed. Like, in my opinion, this is the role she should have been nominated for the Oscar for. Yeah, I mean, well, (laughs) (laughs) there's no recognition for any of the films that we've covered on this podcast, regardless of how good they are in quality. Well, except, strangely enough, Ghost World, which got nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay, but oh my goodness. Yeah, I mean, I I think one of the greatest things about this film is that they cast really good people. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Josh Hutcherson, you aside. <laughs> but yeah. I think in particular the adults, like I remember people thinking that it was very odd that Lenny Kravitz was cast as Cinna, and watching the films, I think he's perfect. Mm-hmm. I think they did a really good job of thinking about what kind of performance all of these different actors are going to bring to the table. And in almost all of the cases, they did a really good job. And I can actually see that falling off in subsequent films as well. Like, I'm trying not to go too, too hard to bat, but it's really frustrating to have seen what Gary Ross did together with Suzanne Collins putting this first film together and really bringing the world to life and casting it so well, visually Mm -hmm. making it like really a great adaptation. And then he basically gets thrown aside so that they can bring in a big action movie director for the second one. And then all of the reviews say that the second film is the best one. And it's like, yes, the action is better. Well, you can see the wheels fall off in the second one. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's partly the book. The second book is better. It's more interesting. It's where more character complexity, even more of it comes in. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of hanging on that. But you're completely right. You know, I, I can't think of really any images from that film that really stood out. And a lot of the character development, it, it's just so flattened compared to the book in the second yeah. one to a degree that the first one isn't. And that's partly because of the choices that were made in the first one. But it's mostly because of what a mess the second one is. Yeah. Mm. But we will get to that on another day. <laughs> yeah. So, so you say. How about a quick round of YA bingo for the Hunger Games? Bingo! 
Not a good bingo. Sounds good. I have checked off a lot of squares. Okay. Do you want to give us a couple and then we'll let... I want to let you guys go and then I want to back clean up today because okay. I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Holy cow. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Alex, do you have a couple? Ooh, okay. Absentee adults. Yup. Abuse. Yup. Mediocre white boys. <laughs> yep. I don't know. The Growing Apart is maybe more book two than this one. Allusions to classic lit. Yep. Especially, like, I hadn't even realized until I read later that Everdeen is from, that's like a name from classic lit. They just spelled it differently. Oh. It's the main character in um, Far From the Madden Crowd. Yes. Oh. Yeah. I And I think PETA is oh, also somebody... Yeah, like Collins did a good job of naming characters based on a bunch of different classical elements. Ooh, I have to think some of those through. Yeah, like the character from Far From the Madding Crowd is also like a very independent, strong-minded, strong-willed woman. So I think that's where that comes from. Hmm. But, um, well, I was trying to decide whether convenient expertise was, <laughs> I guess, sort of. I think, yeah, we had talked about the fact that she's just so good with the bow and arrow is, I mean, it is a character trait, but it's also exceedingly convenient that she has a skill that will serve her so, so well in the games. Well, and also his ability for his disguise. Yeah. Yeah. That one even more so. Like, that's not what Kate Frosting looks like. No. <laughs> and I love that they don't even mention it in the film, so you oh, never yeah. see him do it. He just magically has that ability. He's You're on like, a log. come on, folks. But yeah, it's true. Yeah. yeah. I'm gonna put in I'm not sure if stunt casting is appropriate because I feel like everybody's just well cast. It's not like anybody parachutes in for a quick hot moment. Mm-hmm. I do remember they were very big on the reveal of Woody Harrelson though. Do you remember that as Hamish when he was cast? It was like, What? Oh, so, yes, I do remember yeah. that. Yeah, because yeah. he was such an unorthodox choice, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and of course, we've got Dystopia, yep. the most obvious of all <laughs> bingo slots. Yep. Brenna, what else do you have? So I got all of those. You guys added convenient expertise in stunt casting, which I didn't have, but I will add to that gaslighting okay. mm-hmm. and CGI, because I found the fire right. deeply <laughs> egregious. <laughs> uh, I concur. Not that bad. is one of the problems with Buffy, is it's even worse than this. Oh, See, yeah, really... but that's a television budget, so... Yeah. I just have such a hard time with CGI, as Joel knows. Yes. <laughs> well, thankfully, it's not going to be too, too much of a problem with our next book. But uh, before we announce that, maybe we should do some wrap-up, Brenna? Sounds good. So if you want to write in and share your thoughts about um, the Hunger Games, uh, you can do so. You can find both Joe and I using the hashtag HKHSPod on the Twitters. Uh, You can find me directly at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. How about you, Joe? I am at B Stole My Remote, and that's the letter B. And if you want to send an email to the show, send us your Hunger Games fan fiction. That's hkhspod at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Alex, if folks are looking for you because they want to share the Hunger Games love, how should they track you down? Uh, yeah, so you can find me on Twitter at bwestcineast. That's B-W-E-S-T-C-I-N-E-A-S-T-E can find my writing on seventh row which is seventh-row.com where we also publish books and you can also find me on my podcast which is the seventh row podcast and i even guessed on one of those we talk about the nightingale which is 
not at all appropriate for this podcast. <laughs> it's like, it's a great film, but it's so adult in all kinds of troubling ways. So you, it was great to have you on the show, Alex. It was really nice to gang up with someone on Joe. That's actually my favorite thing to do. I just appreciate the fact that we had very intelligent conversation about the Hunger Games. Because I, I feel like it could have been an egregious, you know, like, ah, oh, this movie's so good. Ah, oh, it's so much fun. And instead, I think we got down to a lot of the really interesting pieces in it. So thank you, Alex. Oh, well, thanks for having me. Speaking of talking about smart stuff, Joe. Yeah. I'm sending you back to the world of classic literature next week, am I not? You sure are, yeah. So I'm excited to share this news. I will be reading my very first Jane Austen for this podcast. Excuse me? You've never read Jane Austen? No. How did you get an English degree? I went to school out west. (laughs) (laughs) No excuse. Yeah, so we're going to be reading Jane Austen's Emma, and we're going to be watching Amy Heckerling's Clueless. I'm so excited with the never-aging Paul Rudd. I can't wait. Yes, him also. (laughs) (laughs) He does look exactly the same today as he did in that film. Exactly the same. It's shocking. Like, what deal of the devil did this man make? (sighs) Anyway. But I want in. (laughs) We'll dig into all of that next week. So until next time, I will see you on the page. Yes, and I will see you on the screen.